Welcome back to Focus. I'm Ron Sisko. Today, today the subject is cultural change. So many of us are so lucky to be born and living in a time now where so much change has happened. In this time, in this, in this era, if you can classify it as an era, an era of change, more has changed culturally in the last 100 years than any other time period in history and as quickly. Part of that is communication. Part of that is the introduction of the digital age, YouTube, magazines, television, telephones, newspapers, the telegraph. I pride myself at, as, at being a person who likes to, to conform to change, which, which seems oxymoronic in a lot of ways. Change itself is the idea that conforming to something is the enemy. Whenever you do something, the thought of tradition, the thought that you'd always done something that way, is contradictory to the progress that change offers. The problem is that sometimes change is also antithetical to progress. In most cases, in the business world, change for profit to save a company will dehumanize the people. Across the board, productivity is up and pay hasn't gone anywhere, which means pay is down. In an era where, where people are struggling to get better minimum wages, we're replacing them with machines. That's, that's bound to happen. At the grocery store, you're pretty much expected at this point to ring in your own groceries. I was at a Walmart in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which may be, well, the most miserable Walmart I've ever been in. And as I stood in line and only one cashier was working, a second employee walked up and attempted to ferry the line over to the self-checkout. We knew that the self-checkout existed. We were waiting for a cashier for a reason. From an economics perspective, there's so much different in our day-to-day -day lives as well. I remember, um, I used to record television. I used to have a, an all-in-one TV. It was a, a Panasonic all-in-one 13-inch with, with a VCR built in. And I used to record like The Simpsons so you could watch it later. And I remember, um, it was a, a, a Treehouse of Horror one of the early ones that had a Honda commercial for a Honda Civic. I can't remember what year it was, but probably about 1990, 1989, something like that. And, uh, and it was 7995. That was 7995 for a brand new Honda Civic. Today, the bottom of the line Honda Civic LX, which is the baseline model, is is uh is $19,750. Now part of that expense is is that the rest of everything is more expensive now. Materials are more expensive. And then they continue to jam in 
new technologies, things that are they're necessary, like the rear view camera. That's that's a, a law now. If you have a new new car on the market, you need a rear view camera. That makes sense. But Bluetooth is all built in, and and you have all of these new controls, and and so now uh, the Honda Civic, which to me at the time was the least expensive car in the world, new, is now $19,750. In a previous marriage, we had purchased a Honda Civic. Uh, we bought the EX because it, it made sense to us to, uh, to get some of the newer features that we wanted. And we were really interested in a sunroof. It was, you know, quality of life thing. Um, but the, at that time, the base model was, uh, was just under $16,000. But one of the things that were stunning about that commercial was that I remember the loan payments being just over $199, something like that. And, uh, and I think that was for 36 months. So you'd buy a car and three years later, you'd have it pay off, paid off. And it was a Honda Civic. So uh, you were pretty much guaranteed that that car was going to last you for probably the next 250,000 miles. It wouldn't be much of a car, but it was going to last you for forever. And Honda maintains that reputation today, that, um, that a new Honda Civic is going to last you a very long time. But that three years for $199 is no longer possible. Today, in order to purchase that baseline Honda Civic without tax title and, and other fees and all of the upselling and, and, and anything else, you're, you're looking at uh, right around $585 a month at 4% interest uh, over the course of three years, which... Honestly, it doesn't sound ridiculous until you remember that you're buying a Honda Civic. So um, how are you going to pay $585 a month? Obviously, you're going to extend the length of the loan. We've changed the way we expect loans to work. No longer are we looking at 36 months or 48 months. Now, 96 months is a pretty standard loan term in order to make family cars, because the Honda Civic, as, as uh, reliable as it may be, isn't exactly family-friendly. It's not, it doesn't offer a lot of space in the uh, back seat, so you, you would like a larger car, which is going to cost you a little more money. The average car price probably being around the $35,000 mark for a brand new car for a family, maybe more. And the only way that you can make that work is to, to pay that off for seven, eight, nine years. And the crazy thing about it is your car isn't any more reliable than it used to be. Maintenance is a little bit easier, honestly, but these days the cost of repairing your car is wildly out of control because we don't, we don't create things to fix them, we create them to replace them. And even in that Honda Civic for $19,000, the automatic transmission is now so complicated and also so disposable that if, if you were to have transmission issues they would just replace it. And if you were outside of that warranty, you'd be footing that cost. Outside of the general state of culture and a relationship with money, and, and uh, our relationship with money has changed because of, I, I guess, vices are different. We, we see in the media people complaining about people going to Starbucks constantly, daily. But how different is that now that so many people aren't smoking? That same pack a day is a trip to Starbucks. And we look at de-stressing in some way if it's if it's your trip to Starbucks or McDonald's or, or whatever. And, and we look at that as a negative thing. This is how you're spending your money the wrong way. Where back in the day, buying a pack of cigarettes or two packs of cigarettes a day wasn't, wasn't even th- something you'd blink at. 
our rela- relationship with entertainment and the money regarding entertainment has changed as well. Uh, people don't go to the movies as often as they used to, but they still go out. Fewer people are seeing movies, but the cost of movies has gone up and, and the amenities for movies has gone up. So seeing a movie in 3D is much more expensive, obviously. I remember going out to the movies constantly when I was a kid, especially those matinee films for $2 a, a showing. But now everyone, everyone has large TVs. Even people who couldn't afford, like in the income bracket, bracket where they couldn't afford TVs in the past can afford TVs because the economics of building a television have made them disposable enough that the cost associated with purchasing a TV is so low that anyone can push themselves to do it. And so they do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying people deserve less because they make less, but the economics are there. And it, it's, it's interesting that in almost every house in America, you can find a 40-inch or larger television, LCD, sometimes mounted on the wall, usually accompanied by a video game console if there's anybody under the age of 40 in the house. We don't pay for cable anymore. Uh, some of us do, but, but most of us have found a way to finally get away, with, get away from uh, the, the draconian uh, cable system, and, and we've all la carted our way through all of these different services. Now, instead of paying for cable, we pay for great internet that they keep, continue to try to restrict us and, and charge us over to make us pay for the dropping the cable. Um, and, and we have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and the new Disney service and CBS access and NBC and BBC and all of these different services that, that everyone wants you to pay for. It's definitely caused a lot of companies to homogenize their content. And HBO has gone out of their way to create a brand new uh, frontier in programming that all of the other companies have started to follow, Showtime and and Netflix and, and Hulu and, and Amazon creating their own content in order to to create an experience that you can only get on their service. Game of Thrones is groundbreaking in that way. In a lot of ways, we, we've lost that, that the beauty of, of content that's been created specifically for uh, channels that no one would watch or a few people would watch, the niche. And we've pushed that into the fringe and those things now exist on YouTube and Vimeo and uh, all of these other servers, even, even on Facebook. Even on fa- Facebook has videos. People watch videos on Facebook through ads, and, and that's changed the way we consume content. We don't sit down to do it either. We, um, we're constantly bombarded by it. If you're not sitting in with a phone in your hand watching a video, and I know I often am, so I'm not... I'm not saying that people who do it are bad or that I'm above that because I do it, but we're constantly consuming content. And if you're sitting in a mall, you're probably watching a screen. And if you're in a grocery store, you're listening to it or watching it on a screen. If you're filling up your car or your motorcycle with gasoline, you're watching it on a screen. And those changes have forced us into a place where we have to be aware of what's going on culturally. From a media perspective, there's no escaping what's going on in the world. Everyone now has an opinion because everyone's now aware of it. Depending on how you look at those things, this can be a good or bad thing. And honestly, I think we're overexposed to media in general, even though I'm constantly doing it to myself. 
We have the opportunity to use those things as a force for good, and sometimes we do. For the most part, it is not a good thing to sexually harass a woman. And by that I mean, it's never a good thing to sexually harass a woman. But now we're aware of it. We're, we're seeing it happen. We're believing people who report the harassment. And for some of us, that's a bad thing. And for some of us, they look at that as a negative transaction. That the world has changed for the worse because they're now uncomfortable with that change. Today, looking at, at people, we're now more accepting of gay culture. Homosexuals are a part of life now. They, they're friends. They're no longer people we talk about. We don't discuss them, for the most part, as some fringe members of society who may or may not deserve some legal rights that come along with being a married in, in one way or another. We, I remember when I was in the 90s, um, not knowing much about homosexuality beyond what my father had told me, that maybe, and that I had thought that instead of marriage, maybe they could have civil union and then everyone could be happy without giving too much away. That was progressive in my household. Without giving too much away, that was progressive in most of the conversations I had. I grew up in a very poor neighborhood in Connecticut, which, again, sounds like an oxymoron, but gay culture wouldn't have flown in that because with poverty comes a lot of ego, and at the time, that was just not something that was accepted. In my household, despite the fact that my parents uh, regarded very highly a lot of gay artists, being gay was not an option. Exposure to people who were gay was something that was very limited in general. I remember watching Ellen on television and, uh, and then my dad saying we couldn't watch it anymore because she kissed another woman and that was, that was wrong. And, and, and that was kind of a wake-up moment for me. So thank you, Ellen. But like, why was it wrong? I remember being in, in high school and having the very ignorant opinion that if you allowed gay people to integrate in locker rooms or bathrooms... That, uh, that they would maybe look at you the wrong way or, or flirt with you or something. Not, you know, not that it doesn't happen, but, you know, what, what an ego I have to, to assume that that would be the case. And honestly, I, I share that with you now, but I'm embarrassed by that. I re regret feeling that way ever, but it is how we felt. We use the word gay as a pejorative to describe things that were boring or stupid. I listened to a lot of rap music uh, in my teen years, and I, I still do now, but um, and at the time, in the 90s especially, using a certain six-lettered F-word to describe people as being less than, somehow. Even though that was used to, to, to describe people who were, who were homosexual. And that, that, that connection, an attack on the ego. And, and now, it still gets used now, but it feels much more taboo. Hip-hop culture has finally come around to allowing, um, and allowing is really the word I'm going to use, allowing uh, openly bi or openly homosexual performers. 
be part of that culture. Whereas before, that would have been lambasted and ostracized. The same issues that homosexuals faced yesterday, and to an extent still do today, are the ones that trans people now face directly. And daily, it becomes more and more accepted. I would be dishonest if I told you that I understood those cultures, because I'm not part of them. But it costs us nothing to just accept people as they are, or as they want to be. And that's been a large cultural shift, a very difficult cultural shift, one very hard-earned for the people who experience it. The black community would hate me comparing that, but I feel, I feel that to civil rights in the 50s. As a child of the 80s and 90s, uh, being half Asian and half Hispanic, I never felt like I had any home culturally. And I've spoken on this before. So I understand what it feels to not, not have a place, not feel directly accepted. But I don't, I don't understand what it is to have people be outwardly violent toward you, to, to feel that your life is being threatened because of the color of your skin or because of how you want to dress or because of who you are and who you love. The funny thing about all of those changes is that they are polarizing and in a way that I don't personally understand. I don't know why people would feel like having an element of their society be present rather than be hidden would change the society at all. It's pure ignorance to think that people who are trans having to stay in the closet or people who are gay having to stay in the closet will reduce that in your society. Homosexuals have existed since the beginning of, of time. The constant arguments I hear about what the Bible says about gay culture, gay people, um, can always be met with the same thought. If it was possible to suppress gay culture, then why would it still be around? If you believe that the Bible is a, a document of historical value, then you know that gay people have existed since before that time. You don't, you don't caution against something if it doesn't exist. Those same cultural trans transitions that would have taken uh, decades or even maybe an entire century now happen in a matter of years. And, and it's exciting and it's scary because those same reactions that, that people have are now capitulating in a way that, that it's almost like a rubber band snapping. It's hard to watch your friends or people who you thought were friends make judgments on other people in the same way they would have made judgments on you decades ago. It's hard to watch them take someone who would be different and in the same ways that you would be different before they got to know you, judge who you are and, and determine that you deserve less because of, because of who you are, because of who you are deep down inside. It's hard to believe that that person would 
make excuses for not allowing you the freedom of expression and the freedom of being true to yourself and the freedom of of being able to love who you want to love and using children as as some sort of armor for the criticism for their 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 thoughts and their actions it's hard to realize that that decades ago that same person would have put you in the same position and would have said things about people that you know people that you love people that are in your family and then when you had gotten hurt they would have said oh well not you of course you're different one of the arguments that continues to come up time and time again is that we've become too sensitive as a culture and I can't disagree I believe we've become so sensitive as a culture that we can no longer have meaningful conversations without someone losing their head it bothers me when someone says we've become too sensitive and now you can't even make jokes anymore and it's true the scope of comedy has definitely changed from from the days when I used to watch stand-up comics but when you say that what you're really saying is we've become so sensitive that I can no longer make fun of the people that I want to make fun of anymore and from a free speech perspective you have that right but free speech is a government protection not a private protection if you were to listen back to these podcasts and you were to say that you were offended or disappointed by any of the things that I said I would say you had every right to be but these are the things that I said and these are the words that I own and this is how I feel despite the fact that I am what I would consider to be a burgeoning competition shooter. I know that the things that I've said in this podcast that I take responsibility for, that I are, they are my words, this, these are, this is my ownership of the things that I've said, do not agree with a lot of the sponsors that exist in that world. And I would never hold anyone accountable for the fact that I will probably never earn a sponsorship in that world because of what I said because I have a right to free speech and I have the right to not have the government suppress the things that I'm saying but I can't I can't claim those protections in my private life I can't claim those protections from you being disappointed or offended or from companies not wanting to deal with me but to return to it I do believe we've gotten so sensitive that we can no longer have a real conversation a meaningful conversation because the minute someone detects the reason to be offended rather than explain it we've become subject to what they call outrage culture in a lot of ways it's like when you're on the scene of an accident or uh, an assault generally speaking the first person who calls 911 is the person who's going to be viewed as the victim and so I don't like to look at it as outrage culture I like to look at it as victim culture and part of the reason that I think we're so haltingly adopting the change that, that we are subject to these days is because rather than having a meaningful, deep conversation about these things, about why people are uncomfortable, about why they don't like the change and why the change should be accepted or why they should consider it in a different way, 
we're so quick to ostracize that other person. The reality of it is, none of us are ready for change. Humanity as a whole, even with people like me, who are, well, I like to consider myself an agent of change. I'm not ready for change. Even when I fight and work for change, even when I instigate change, even when I'm the person who directly implements change, change is chaos. And anyone who's ever dealt with chaos knows that you cannot scream chaos into order. Chaos absorbs you. You become part of chaos. It is the year 2019. In my childhood, this was a year that science fiction wrote about, told stories about. One of my top five favorite films of all time, Blade Runner, took place in 2019, was set in 2019, a future where Earth had become so destitute that people had left the planet, the healthy of us had left the planet, the best of us had left the planet to, to survive, to have one day the hope of thriving. And that's what science fiction told me about 2019. In this, our own 2019, in, in the real 2019, in, in our real 2019, we still have a planet and we are here together. And all of that acceptance and change that, that socially conservative people continue to put off as the liberal media creating a narrative and pushing an agenda is just one of acceptance. And it used to be that the culture of hate was fed in one direction. And people will definitely accuse me of weakness, of not wanting to actually affect change. But the truth of the fact is punching a Nazi will never teach a Nazi not to be a Nazi. Punching a Nazi will only teach a Nazi that what he thought was right, that he's being persecuted, that he is now the victim. In his mind, he called 911 first. There are no equations that explain everyone. Not everyone is, is understanding or gentle or accepting or loving. But I do know one thing about hate. You can't change the world with hate. You can only make the world smaller. If there's anything we should have learned from our experiences with terrorism and torture, it's that violence and pain will never change a mindset. You can only program someone until they fight back. Since I'm in the middle of mixing metaphors, I guess we could always talk about war. And in the war for hearts and minds, there will always be losses. There will always be those who cannot be changed. There will always be those who make the ultimate mistakes and others who pay the ultimate price. And while you can confuse and charm and use clever words to 
to convince people to follow you for, for a period of time, there's no way to change hearts and minds without love. Thank you for listening.